The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Bloomberg Benchmark is brought to you by Sage Summit, the world's largest gathering of small and medium businesses, featuring Sir Richard Branson, July 25th to 28th in Chicago. Register with promo code BUSINESS at sagesummit.com for just $99. 对,对,大家好,我非常高兴在这里。Dan,纽约的天气怎么样?I uh, asked you how the weather was in New York. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Hello and welcome back to the Bloomberg Benchmark Podcast. I'm Daniel Moss, Executive Editor for Global Economics at Bloomberg News. You no doubt feel bombarded with news and opinions about Brexit, Britain's vote to leave the European Union and why it matters. But have you heard that disgruntled electors in the UK might really have been voting to leave China? More on that in a minute. First, some introductions to two new co-hosts. Kate Smith, who's with me here in New York, and Scott Lambin in Washington. Kate, one thing I want to share with our listeners is that prior to joining Bloomberg News, you actually covered murders in Baltimore. Yes, which makes me, of course, uniquely and aptly qualified to talk about the global economy, don't you think? I think we'll have to do an episode on the economics of inner city crime. I'm in. And Scott, you're an economics editor in D.C., and you spent three years in Beijing closely observing what's become the world's second largest economy from our office there. Welcome. I asked you how the weather was in New York. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Back to the UK. Now, to expand on precisely why this may have been a vote to leave Beijing rather than Brussels... Our guest is Mark Champion. Mark's a writer in our London bureau. He's been covering government in Europe and the Middle East for the better part of three decades. Mark, thanks for joining us. And not at all. Thank you, Dan. Now, China wasn't formally on the ballot, but in many ways, wasn't the contest a referendum on the enormous changes to the world economic system that's resulted from China's rise? Well, I think that has to be right, uh, even though uh, I think few Brexit voters would articulate it that way. Um, you know, a lot more would point at globalization, you know, all that unsettling change that helped to turn developed economies, especially the UK, from manufacturers into service providers. And that caused a lot of, uh, you know, churn and turmoil for workers in these countries. And, you know, globalization, of course, relies on a free mo movement of capital and of people. It's the kind of the flat world that the journalist Tom Friedman likes to talk about. And it's great for people who have globally competitive skills, so, you know, people who design stuff and uh, the lawyers, the financiers. And those people tended to vote to stay in the EU. Uh, but it is not so great for those who uh, lack the skills to compete. And, you know, these people, they won't meet Chinese workers, but they do meet globalization. It just 
takes the form of, uh, for them, of inequality, immigration, and it causes a lot of resentment, and that's all now bubbling over. You know, they blame their governments. They blame the EU. They blame these people and, and these institutions for just failing to protect them. Now, if you look at the economic changes that have taken place in China and the breakneck pace of growth that's happened since the late 70s when Deng opened the place up, China has become emblematic of precisely what these people are rebelling against. Uh, yes, it has. And you know, the other kind of interesting thing is that you know, China has buy-in here. You know, what was kind of interesting in the international response to the Brexit campaign, you know, before the vote in particular, but since too, was how you know, the Russian and Chinese responses were different. You know, Russia was just unable to hide its glee at the idea of a Brexit vote of the EU becoming weaker and the transatlantic alliance being weaker. It saw it very much in terms of a zero-sum political game. But for Chinese leaders, they were just bemused uh, and troubled as to why the UK would want to do such a thing. I mean, they have a big stake in uh, rich consumer economies of the West buying their goods. Uh, they like the European single market. Uh, they like these trading institutions. And they're, they're big stakeholders. That's because they're big stakeholders in globalization. And of course, you know, the UK, I'm sorry, China is the second largest importer of goods into the UK behind Germany, of course. I mean, it's 8.7% of all of the UK's imports. That's that's not a small number. But I do find it funny that the what we're talking about is the, the average leave voter doesn't see the Chinese immigrant as a threat. You know, physically, they don't see them. But actually, they might start to. I was looking at some immigration stats and... Um, at the turn of the millennium, so in 2000, China was the 11th largest immigrator into the UK. And that was about 96,000 people a year. Well, last year, they actually jumped to the eighth largest. And this is behind you know, not all countries in the EU. And that was 196,000. So, Dan, you know, you started this podcast by saying, you know, the average Lee voter might not see the Chinese as, you know, the threat to, you know, that factory job that they lost in northern England that they can never have again. But they actually might start to. They might start to realize that. And, Scott, is China the world's largest exporter of they any and everything? Indeed, they are. They're uh, far larger, I think, than the U.S. at number two. It just feels like one of the dominant narratives, economic narratives of the last several decades, has been China's ability to attract manufacturing plants from Western companies, assemble the stuff there, and then export it to wherever. Sometimes it's component parts that are being exported for reassembly somewhere else. Now, China is moving up the value chain, and it certainly is not as cheap as it once was. But, you know, again, it just seems like it's got to be at the core of any discussion we have about globalization. But we also can't forget all the benefits that it has for the average Chinese worker as well. I mean, again, in 2000, you had about 5 million households who you would kind of classify in that middle income band. And now, just last year, it was 225 million households. That is such a it's such a large jump. So as we're you know, thinking about those workers, oh, woe is me, I don't have my factory job anymore. Like, let's not forget the massive positive impact we've had on a just a ginormous group of people. What's interesting is that China is actually being subject to the same kinds of globalization forces that have affected 
the Western world, the advanced economies, U.S. and U.K. in the last uh, several decades. You, you have cheaper countries like uh, Vietnam, yeah. Malaysia, Indonesia, Bangladesh, and so on, where uh, large Western companies are actually moving production, and that's why China is indeed having to move up to higher value goods. Now, that's not disappearing anytime soon, but it, it, it is happening. It just shows you it's not a you know, a one-way street that this is happening. But I actually wanted to ask another question to Mark. We're in the middle of this presidential campaign right now where this does happen every four years, but again, China is being demonized, uh, really, by both Republicans and Democrats. Uh, what are the attitudes toward China on the ground in the UK? You have a government under David Cameron that tried to bend over backwards to please China, win investment after they had angered Chinese leaders a few years ago with a visit from the Dalai Lama. Is that going to change at all under Theresa May? Is there any of the anger that we have in the U.S. over working folks' jobs being taken away by China? Uh, well, again, it's articulated differently. So uh, I think there's a consensus that uh, the U.K. would like to export more to China. And ironically, given all the blame on the EU, they'd like to be as successful as the Germans are in exporting to China. So I think there's support uh, for David Cameron when he goes over to China and tries to uh, talk up big uh, trade deals and investment deals. Uh, there's support for that. But then in, in terms of uh, broader trade deals, you have the same hostility there that is developed to the idea of a, a transatlantic trade deal, deal with the European Union uh, that has developed in the U.S. towards the Trans-Pacific Partnership. So there are a lot of people um, upset about that in the U.K., which has been a big driver. The government has been a big driver for that deal, um, and yet it is increasingly unpopular. And I think that's where you see the kind of hidden resentment of what you know China represents in terms of globalization. But it doesn't necessarily take the form of being upset with uh, doing trade with China. Uh, people assume they're going to be importing Chinese goods. They know that they can't make the toys anymore. But they want uh, to have a, a bigger export market in China. Um, what they get upset about is the, the, these large trade deals. We're going to take a quick break and hear from our sponsor. Hold that thought, Mark. We'll be right back. Bloomberg Benchmark is brought to you by Sage Summit, the world's largest gathering of small and medium businesses, featuring Sir Richard Branson, July 25th to 28th in Chicago. Register with promo code BUSINESS at sagesummit.com for just $99. Now, Mark, you've spent the last couple of weeks traveling around the United Kingdom, talking to people about Brexit. So what would an average Brexit voter in a one-time industrial stronghold in Northern England, the sort of place that gave us the Industrial Revolution, what would they say to the idea that the EU actually isn't responsible for what it is that's bothering them? They're railing against the wrong target. If they are voting for Brexit, they've been persuaded that the EU is the culprit. Um, and they, they probably wouldn't be very uh, receptive to uh, you know, the argument simply because the Remain campaign has been trying to persuade them otherwise for, for some time, and they, they rejected that argument. But, uh, you know, I, I think it is difficult for them. I mean, if you put it a bit differently, uh, the, the EU is really a symptom 
of the problem that they are upset with. You know, people are upset about it for, for all kinds of different reasons, you know, issues of sovereignty or identity, even imperial nostalgia for some. But overwhelmingly, it's about inequality and immigration. And the EU at root didn't cause those things, uh, but it is very much involved in people's minds, and it is involved. So you can read the EU, in fact, as an attempt by you know, European nations to kind of bulk themselves up with a bigger market, a bigger currency, uh, so that they can have a kind of stronger collective defense against globalization. If you just think about trade deals, you know, how do you, how do you have weight across the negotiating table with the Chinese? Well, the best way to do that is to have, you know, a really big market. Um, same goes for anti-dumping disputes and things, you know, market size is might. But then you have people like uh, the German finance minister, uh, Wolfgang Schäuble, and he was just incredulous at the idea of the choice that the UK was making. Because, um, you know, he, as he said, uh, you know, choosing splendid isolation, isolation is simply not smart in today's global economy. And that's what he, you know, by rejecting the EU, that's what he thinks and what most EU leaders think the UK is doing. Um, but the real problem for the EU in making that argument, which I think is actually a pretty good argument, but the, the real problem for the EU is that it's doing a very bad job. You know, it's a, a strong argument for the Leave campaign was to point at the euro crisis, at Greece, you know, high unemployment, massive youth unemployment in Spain and Italy, um, and, and just to ask who needs that kind of help. It's interesting the way some of the historical timelines align here. You know, when Britain had its first referendum on EU membership in 1975, it was an overwhelmingly popular thing. Something like 67% mark voted in favour of membership. And yet it's around that time some momentous changes were beginning to build in China. Now, in 75, Mao was still alive, but he was ailing. And within a couple of years of his passing uh, the following year, Deng had consolidated power and the economic history of the globe was never the same again. Scott? Well, it just shows that globalization is not a zero-sum game. You know, just because China has become a winner and it's, it's lifted a lot of boats in China, it hasn't lifted everyone else in the rest of the world. And, and that's the predicament that a lot of countries are finding themselves in since, uh, you know, as, as we know, the phenomenon of protesting through votes or however against anti-globalization forces is not, against globalization forces, excuse me, is not limited to the Brexit vote. So, I mean, it sounds like from what we're saying is that the voters in the UK had the right idea, but they hit the wrong target. You know, China has so much more sway over economic forces that shapes the lives of British voters than the EU. Mark? Uh Yes, in a sense, I think that's right. The, the big slogan, the powerful slogan that, you know, arguably really swung the vote uh, for the Leave campaign was, you know, we want to take back control. And I think that is the ultimate sense that people have, that they have somehow they have lost control, lost control of their borders, lost control of, of 
economic policy. The global capital markets are just so large that you know, governments don't really have the power anymore to make the decisions that people would like them to be making in order to protect them. And so this was a kind of a cry of enough. And you know, whenever you call a referendum, people tend to vote about anything but the question on the ballot. And I think you could argue that that has happened here again, that uh, the EU was just uh, unfortunate enough to be on the ballot. But if you had called a referendum on anything that asked people to answer the question, are you happy with the way that things are now, the answer would have been no. So if you make the argument that China has really been the driving force in changes in the global economy in the past several decades, then by extension, globalization will ultimately survive Brexit if the EU was a symptom rather than a cause. So this would just be a glancing blow in a long war? Well, actually, I think that if you look at the uh, on the ground in China, the evidence of globalization is all around you. And there's a fascination in China with British culture. Uh, for example, th there's a housing development on the outskirts of Shanghai that looks like an English town with red telephone booths. Downton Abbey is hugely popular. I live down the street from a Bentley dealership there. Uh, Marks and Spencer, the iconic British uh, department store, has locations in Shanghai and Beijing, as well as three other second-tier cities in China. There's tourism ads in the subway for visiting the UK. Just those kinds of ties signal to me, at least, that this is not a passing fad and that Brexit, you know, it might affect one area of relations, but it's not going to undermine the global tide. Mark, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think that's generally right. And, you know, optimistically, I very much hope that that's right. But I think that one lesson of Brexit that we should all take to heart is that you ignore uh, politics and the politics of emotion at your peril. Uh, it, it surprises you. Nobody, including the Leave campaign, expected for the Brexit vote to win. And everyone was surprised because they assumed that people would vote in their own economic interests. Instead, they have conducted a vote which, in all probability, is uh, in it will do them harm. Um, and this isn't the first time that we've been through this. You know, there have been ages of globalization before. You know, the period before World War One was a high high watermark of globalization too. But politics can intervene. And, in, you know, you, you could argue that we are kind of in the middle of a, a sort of modern revolution, you know, where an old, the old order is being changed and assumptions are being overturned, regimes are being changed. There are populist uh, parties arising all over Europe, uh, centrist parties that have had, you know, been around for 100 years are, are you know, almost disappearing. And nobody, like with all revolutions, you know, nobody really has uh, the slightest idea how it will turn out. You can be pretty sure that it won't uh, turn out the way that the, the, you know, the people making these votes uh, think it will. The only good thing about it all is that it's happening nowadays, you know, in referendums and, ref and elections and not, uh, not violence. Well, Mark, we can't thank you enough for adding this perspective for us. We'll follow your reporting around the UK with great interest. Thanks. So, Kate, have you heard enough to come back next week? Yeah, I think, I think I'll come back. I think I'll come back. Yeah, do you think we should let Scott back? No, definitely not. Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> I heard that. 
I heard that. Wait, Scott's still on the line? You know, I can, I can speak English, too, not just Chinese. <laughs> As for Benchmark, we'll be back next week. And until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal and Bloomberg.com, as well as on iTunes, Pocket Cast, and Stitcher. While you're there, take a minute to rate and review the show so more listeners can find us. And let us know what you thought of the show. You can talk to us and follow us on Twitter. You can find Scott at Scott Landman. You can find me at By Kate Smith. You can find Dan at Daniel Moss, DC. Zaijian. Bloomberg Benchmark is brought to you by Sage Summit, the world's largest gathering of small and medium businesses, featuring Sir Richard Branson, July 25th to 28th in Chicago. Register with promo code BUSINESS at sagesummit.com for just $99. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.